Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. We talk about oil here at Drilling Deep, and you've got to drill for oil to get it. And that's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. We also talk about lots of other things. And this week, our guest is a legend in the industry, Spencer Tenney. He is the managing partner in the Tenney Group, and they have their pulse on the merger and acquisition activity in the freight sector, like probably nobody else does. He's going to be here in a few minutes. I am almost reluctant to say anything about diesel because it might be out of date by the time you listen to this. So let's put everything out there so you can have some perspective. I'm recording this late on Thursday, May 12th. It will be published, or as they say in the podcast field, it will drop on May 13th. So you know the timing of what I'm going to say in case by the time you listen to it, it's all totally wrong. What happened this week actually was, in some ways, a mixed bag for diesel consumers. Yes, the outright price on the CME rose. Between Monday and Thursday, it climbed about 15 cents. But it had a big drop a big drop on Monday itself. And as I speak, we're up only about 4 cents a gallon since last Friday. Remember, the CME ultra-low sulfur diesel price is the price that is the beginning of the entire mechanism that ultimately sets what you pay at the pump. It remains the most important price out there. And yes, the DOE diesel price, which comes out weekly, of course, it did rise by 11.4 cents for the week. So it's at $5.62.3. That's 62.3 cents. That is the highest price ever. Of course, that's paid by the shippers when the price is built into a fuel surcharge. But I think the focus now has to be on the East Coast. Inventories in that market are so tight that it led one refining executive, a man named John Castamides, who owns a small refining company called United Refining, to tell Bloomberg this week that he could see allocations of diesel supplies coming this summer. That's a scary prospect. The Energy Information Administration reported that inventories of ultra-low sulfur diesel dropped more than 1 million barrels last week on the East Coast, which took them down to levels that already were some of the lowest ever. It's hard to say that they are the lowest ever because the category has some lower numbers out there on the on the history chart, but consumption of this lowest sulfur product used to be a, a lot less in the past. So let's just not quibble over numbers and tell you that the levels reported last week were down 50% just from the start of this year. So they're real, real tight. Why then am I a little encouraged? Maybe I'm just an unrealistic optimist, but I see a few things that leave me hopeful that at least in the short term, the East Coast might be able to avoid a crisis. I've been watching closely the price relationship between diesel barrels on the East Coast and in the Gulf Coast uh, for those physical traders who trade this stuff every day. Those should usually trade for a few cents premium in favor of the East Coast. They haven't done so in a while. The market is so insane that that spread got up to more than 65 cents earlier in the week. It's now come back down toward the 35 cent level. That is still completely crazy compared to historic norms, but it isn't 65 cents. So maybe the market in the East is loosening up a little bit. Second, the math on exporting diesel to Europe is not favorable. Exports have been running high in recent weeks. I don't think that is going to continue. The economics of buying product here in the U.S. and shipping it to Europe just aren't working. That should keep more diesel here in this country. Third, the price of diesel on the CME this week move upward by smaller percentages than the price of gasoline or crude. Diesel has been like a bull in, the, in a china shop in recent weeks, outgaining gasoline and crude. This week, that stopped. The spread of diesel over Brent is starting to come down. That signals that maybe the market isn't as tight as it was. Look, I could be crying over these words next week. The market is seriously nuts, 
and people I have known for years in the oil industry will all tell you the same thing. They've never seen anything like this. I'm not saying prices are headed for a fall, but the East Coast squeeze is a real problem that if it got out of hand, you're talking about shortages of food and other supplies on shelves. This is bad stuff. If there are signs that maybe it is easing, I'm going to say it. Let's see if I'm laughing or crying next week. Uh, Time to move on now on Drilling Deep, as we always do. Our guest today is Spencer Tenney. He is the president and CEO of the Tenney Group, the company that bears his name. And Spencer's group is a one of the leading uh, advisors to mergers and acquisitions in the supply chain space, in the logistics space. Uh, I I heard one of his colleagues speak at the Transportation Intermediates Association, Intermediates Association uh, back in San Diego a few weeks ago. And uh, I thought that this was a great subject. Spencer, we bumped into each other somewhere and we decided, yeah, let's do this. So thanks for joining us on Drilling Deep. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So the Tenney Group is an M&A advisor to really all parts of the supply chain. Why don't you talk a little bit about what areas you are in, the kind of key areas you are in, and grade them on what are the hottest ones right now? No, primarily where the, the markets that we serve are they're truckload and, and logistics companies that are in that 20 to 300 million in annual revenue. Um, that makes it probably 90% of, of the work that we do. And, and we almost do entirely sell side representation. And our model's designed to provide um, very specific expertise for a highly underserved uh, market of business owners. Um, sometimes those folks, it's too complex uh, as far as the, the industry for someone off the street uh, as a generalist. And then maybe uh, maybe too small for some of the larger investment banks to, to really get their arms around and dig in and, and uh, get, get a little gritty with these guys. And so we, we fill that role. And we you know we, our deals right now anywhere from we've got drive in, we've got reefer. Uh, we just went under contract with a three um, PL uh, just sold uh, another brokerage firm on Friday. That's the fourth in 120 days. But uh, we also do liquid bulk, but pretty much anything that's kind of intersecting uh, the supply chain. Uh, and we just onboarded a warehousing deal as well. So the, all those things that we're doing, uh, we're just trying to bring value where we can, help people become more effective through acquisitions. Uh, and then, you know, help people that have worked a long time building something special, make sure that they create some liquidity and have some uh, ownership over selecting who's going to be the next, the next trustee of that business. All right, well, let's talk about that number you gave. You said four in 120 days. Is that a lot? Is that a little? Is that about the norm? Um, I, I think that it's, well, I, I, I think it's significant in terms of just what's coming. I think that we're going to continue that click and continue to do that. But, um, you know, for, for, a, for a boutique M&A advisory firm, that, that, that's certainly getting stuff done. Actually, in this space, yeah, I mean that's that was my thought. For in one twenty, you know, these deals are very complicated; they take a lot of work, and that sounded like you know you were pretty busy. So uh, let's let's talk about the brokerage side of things. I seem to be on a brokerage role here uh, here on Drilling Deep because I talked about it a lot coming out of the TIA meeting a few weeks ago. Um, and your your colleague, um, the Davis Looney, talked on a panel that I listened in on and wrote about. And one thing he said was that there's a lot of new money coming in to the uh, brokerage space on the M&A side. But he also said that valuations had not really risen. And I thought to myself, how is that possible? You know, valuations are a multiple in terms of multiple of EBITDA. 
how can you have this new hot money coming in and the multiples don't rise? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, again, I wasn't, I wasn't there. I mean, I'm, so, so this is what I'll say. Um, in 2021, we did our annual report, and what we found was across the you know transportation logistics space. I think this was through Price Waterhouse Cooper. They did a study. We had about 11 percent increase in deal volume, but the overall value of the deals was up by 80 plus percent. So as far as like you can only say like if if, if the percent of deals is only going up by 10 percent, but the overall value of those deals is up by 80 percent, then clearly. The valuations on those deals are are significantly getting higher, and the majority of that is on the asset light side, on the on the brokerage side deals, and so they're they're the ones that are attracting the highest multiples. So I I, I definitely um, appreciate the data and and agree with it in terms of that's what's happening. Uh, and as far as what we're seeing in the first four months of 20, 2022, certainly um, echoes that trend as far as what we're seeing. And, and it just like like I said, the deal that we just closed. Think that that's consistent with it. We also think that, um, um, you know, with the deal that we that that's scheduled to close next month, also um, is consistent with that. As far as I, I think, there maybe maybe that the the valuations are certainly trending upward, but maybe the the distinction is maybe not as much as what people think, but they're certainly going because I think the data that gets thrown around it gets a little bit dangerous sometimes. So maybe that was the comment was like maybe they're not getting as high as what people have heard or, or the rumors, but the data certainly reinforces that, you know, we're, we're on a seven year trend of which in our belief, it's like, we're that's, that's beginning to level off, but they're still as high as we've ever seen in the last 10 years. Uh, one thing, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a trucking outsider. My, my background is in oil, as everybody knows who listens to this podcast, because I start the, start the podcast by talking about oil. But one thing that's always kind of fascinating me about M&A and trucking and really brokerage too, is that these are businesses with fairly low barriers to entry, I would think. I mean, you know, we, you can start up a trucking company um, a lot easier than you can start up a pharmaceutical company. Uh, and, and brokerage companies start on a very small level all the time. So that really always has kind of intrigued me about the whole buy versus build debate. Like, why does a company go out and buy another brokerage rather than just adding brokers? Why does a company go out and buy more truckload capacity or for capacity or whatever, rather than just get new trucks. So where does that question fall? When, when, you've, when you've talked to buyers uh, who are already in the business, what drives their decision about whether to buy or build? Well, I think there, there's, there's two different approaches, depending on if you're talking about asset heavy, or if you're talking about asset light. Now, it's very simple as far as the asset heavy. Um, in many cases right now, you have all the opportunities in the world to grow organically. The problem is you, you don't have access to equipment and you don't and you can't reliably, you know, get butts in the seats to drive the trucks and to make it actually and to execute. So I think that 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 is a major driver of acquisitions right now. It's just it, it's become a practical matter. Like you can't execute unless you integrate some aspect of acquisitions uh, and, and expect to grow at a reasonable click. Now on the asset light side, yeah, I do think that in some cases you have to be very diligent in your efforts to acquire brokerage companies that really add value. I mean, the, the, the motivations around those deals um, traditionally are around proprietary technology, access to relationships. Uh, there could be some type of cross-selling involved between co companies that provide some really significant synergies. Uh, and, then all, and then there's, um, you know, human capital. I think um, people realize that in order for us to go from a 50 to a $500 million dollar 
company, we don't have the right people. Like, we're, and they're not, we can't home grow that knowledge. And so like, we, we can either wait around for 20 years or we can just go buy it. And so I think that that's, um, you know, tremendously valuable as far as when you, you combine capital with the people that have already taken the lumps and they know what they're doing. It's extremely valuable. And that's why somebody's willing to, to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you know, you, you figure that all, during the, the great resignation, all these companies are probably doing everything they can just to keep the staff they've got and replace the people who walked out the door. And then you got to go out and you're going to hire X number of new people to, to grow. That's really tough. Yeah. I mean, and I think that what I'm specifically talking about are those key management te- people. And in some t- cases, it might be the founder that's just like, hey, I have a vision, but I don't want to execute it on my own. So sometimes it's just, you know, why are you buying someone? You're buying a founder's vision that they can't continue to bootstrap it and go realize that. So sometimes the capital source is like, hey, we, we have to invest our money somewhere. We love your vision. We love your plan. We love your technology. We just want to we just want to capitalize you and let you go do what you do. And then maybe you get a second payday down the road. So I think a lot of that has to do in terms of all the new money coming in, because I do think that it's, it's, it's an attractive business when you can scale that much with very limited capital compared to other industries that you, as you mentioned, um, that's why it's become, a, become the flavor of, uh, of the month or, or at least the decade so far. I mean, never before has transportation logistics been, so appealing from an investment standpoint. Let's talk about the tailwinds or some of the the speed bumps. We'll use whatever idiom we want here. Uh, Higher interest rates, how much of an impact does that have on on the business? I I think it's significant. I think because what it does, it affects the psychology of every business owner and every investor, because you you have to look at it through that lens about whether or not um, I'm going to be able to get a return on investment based on the increased cost of capital. So, when our clients and, and when buyers are looking at this, this is why I, I do think that you're seeing quite a bit of a surge of people trying to get deals done. Because if we're going to have what the Fed signaling is, you know, maybe another five to seven interest rate hikes between now and the end of the year, that just creates costs in the transaction that that benefits neither the buyer or the seller. So, like, that's why there's some urgency around this. It, it, there's a direct correlation to valuation because, like I said, they, the, a buyer is not going to eat that expense. It's, it's going to come directly from the seller's net proceeds uh, because it costs more to, for the capital to go get the deal done. And then the other side of it is, is when you blend in all the other as, other all the other aspects of how these companies use debt, um, it, you know, it, it just kind of pumps the brakes a little bit. And, and so I think that that will impact valuations. I think it will uh, impact deal activity to an extent. But I think the one positive thing about this industry right now is that I don't see any slowing in terms of the interest and the pursuit of great companies. If you have a great company, I don't care if you have, you know, a full point uh, of interest uh, hike increase there, the, 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 the demand and the need for companies like to, to solve complex problems is so key right now. That's not going to affect anything in my opinion. I mean, is there a is there a difference in approach between, let's say, a brokerage company or a truckload company? I will just say a logistics company that's looking to buy to expand versus a private equity company looking to get in or grow in the field. Do they have different metrics to look at? Do they have different goals? I think that well, I definitely think they have different valuation metrics, just because I think there's a certain level of confidence when someone knows what they're doing. They're going to be more comfortable uh, investing in and counting on. Um, 
synergy, you know, synergies post-transaction that are not clearly defined um, as part of the evaluation process. So I think that when we're running a process and we have different buyer types looking at a deal and we have, you know, maybe we have a, a strategic and then we have a private equity back strategic or, or a public strategic. And then we just have like a agnostic private equity group. The range of offers and the deal structures are going to vary greatly across that spectrum looking at the same deal. And so I think that the general rule is it, it's very, it's much easier for someone who understands this industry, who already has a pre-existing platform um, uh, to, to, to make valuation considerations um, that maybe others won't. The, the, the exception would be if someone really, really wants to be in this space and they need the strongest platform possible as a, an initial investment. In those situations, I do think that you're seeing being, people be really aggressive because you, you got to look over the, the five to 10 year um, runway. That first investment affects everything afterwards. So the strongest starting place is really meaningful and very valuable. And that affects valuation as well. Are you finding that when a private equity company looks to get into this space, uh, I guess maybe sometimes for the very first time, in, in some cases they may already have logistic ass, logistics assets, are you finding yourself having to do a lot more hand-holding than you would if you had a somebody who's already in the business that, looking to grow? I, I don't know if hand-holding is the word. I mean, I think maybe there's a, there's a no, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, some, some people come in and, you know, maybe they're humble, maybe they're not. Um, but I think that the, I mean, our, our position is this, we're not really trying to talk a lot of people into doing deals. I mean, this is not something that you want to, um, it, it's hard. And if and, and, and that's why people just don't wake up and say, I think, I think being in the trucking industry, I think, I, I think I want to start something brand new. Like <laughs> that's not really something that happens that often. So I think for the most part, what we're trying to do uh, in a deal, whether we're dealing with private equity or anybody else, to provide insurance around it. It doesn't even matter if they're our client. Most of the time we, we represent the sellers. Like we're trying to provide them resources, be it in the insurance solutions or, you know, um, be it in banking or be it whatever else that they need so that they have more confidence, they have more instruments to go execute if necessary. Um, are you finding that there are any parts of the supply chain that are that are hot, that are maybe a little less known where you're doing deals and maybe something that's a little bit off the beaten track? Um I mean, I think final mile, which I don't know if that's off the beaten track, but that's that's pretty specific um, component of the supply chain, um, highly fragmented. And I think that there's a tremendous effort to try to go. Um, I, I think that investors see that there is major upside to figuring out how to make this final mile much more profitable that, that, that it is today. I mean, it's an extremely inefficient part of the supply chain. So I think that's because of it. I think people realize that, hey, if we can get this figured out, if we get the right partner here, there's tremendous upside. Um, and because it is so fragmented, there's not many companies that we would say qualified to be an actual platform company where you would put a heavy investment and build around it. There's just not enough volume. So like, I think that the, the, the thing that is of high interest where there's very strong pursuit is in, is in the you know those remaining you know, sizable folks that are still kind of mom and pops, but have enough scale and a platform to really do some exciting things in that final mile space. Yeah. I mean, I know that at Freightways, we've written multiple stories about final mile companies that I had never heard of getting purchased by much bigger players. Is that where you're mostly finding the the buyers or is, is, is private equity there? Or is it somebody who can just, who's already in the logistics business who can say, boy, I can really see the synergies here 
if we've got that capability. I would imagine that a final mile capability has a lot more value to some kind of transportation, some kind of freight company than a, than a private equity company. Is, is that a theory hold any water? No, I, I think we, we've seen it a couple of different ways. I mean, we, you know, when we did the deal with Lindstar and Ford Air a couple of years ago, um, you know, they had already had a platform, but they saw this as, as a way to kind of enhance their existing in investment. And so I think that it was you know, about around a million dollars in revenue as far as that deal at the time. And then we've seen other people like, um, you know, New Spring Capital come in and they got um, Freight Right. And, you know, they already had a logistics platform. They, had, they did a lot of other things. Same thing with Cardinal Logistics, um, uh, getting NRX Logistics. Very experienced in the space, but just saw this as a way to, to kind of get even more specialized uh, and, and to enhance the broader capabilities of the company. So I think that everyone's looking for an edge. And, and I think I th- one, of the, one of the qualities of the trucking logistics, most people are pretty humble um, for the most part. And, and so I think that what I see are really good companies noticing that, hey, we're not the experts. We're experts here, but we're not good at this particular thing. Like we need to go use an acquisition. We're not going to train somebody. We don't even, like, we're just mediocre. Like <laughs> we want to be specialists in the same way that we're specialists over here. And so that's when they'll go out and make an acquisition for something that is very specialized and very niche. And and I think the attractive part about that is just because most things that are niche are have a little bit more insulation to outer forces that can, you know, mitigate or that can cut into profits later on. We talked earlier about interest rates due to MA activity. What about just lower trucking freight rates? How much of a correlation is there between a drop of X percent and maybe any change in the valuation? Well, obviously, I mean, I think there, there, there will be a direct, well, I think savvy buyers have looked at the trailing 12 months that very few are going to value the entire business off the most recent and most uh, uncharacteristic performance period in the history of the company. And so like, I mean, maybe they do, but, but I, I think most people will come to a conclusion where there's some type of blending or an average between a two or three year period just to hedge around that. So I, I think that they are going to normalize. I don't think it's going to be dramatic because, like I said, I don't think people were – the vast majority of buyers were giving um, sellers 100% credit, as they shouldn't because, it, I mean, there, it, it is a you know a very unique market that doesn't point towards that level of performance in the future. And so, so I think the difference would be, hey, we can have – they would do it two ways. They would blend the performance it's over – you know, if there was um, – adjusted EBITDA over a couple of years, or they'd say, hey, we'll give you credit for this and for what you do next year. So that if you equal it next year, then we'll give you the full credit. But we have to have some protection in case this is just, you know, a one-time thing. And so I think that's, and so I say that to share that I don't see a huge adjustment because it's kind of been baked in already through most of the deals that have taken place. The buyers have either had an average or they have structured a deal that gave them some protection that you know, that the seller was forced to to continue that performance or something close to it moving forward uh, as a part of risk sharing. I'm going to ask one last question um, because unfortunately we're running out of time here. But again, this also came up in that TIA session uh, where your colleagues spoke. And I guess I would refer to it as demographics. And I've heard this elsewhere that, you know, deregulation of the trucking business was 40 years ago. So maybe somebody who got into it at a young age, like, you know, 29 or 30, now they're 70 or older. And this is a time of their life when they're going to say, okay, it's time for me to cash in. 
uh, pass this on to a next generation, maybe if their own family members don't want to continue. And I think the, the argument that I heard was that this is a particularly rich time of all of these things that started up in 1980, 81, 82. Uh, and now, uh, now they're, 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 they're exiting the business. Do you see a lot of that? A hundred percent. That's not unique to trucking either. I think that's just, that's just baby boomers. Uh, some of the most industrious people of the history of mankind, um, because of when they were born, they're now kind of retiring. We're going to see the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the human race. I mean, that's a fact over the next 10 years. And so, um, you know, so I, the, so a lot of folks are kind of, they love doing what they're doing. They're passionate about it, but you know, this is a cyclical business. You have constant commitments to CapEx. And so a lot of people are, you know, not because, not, not because they're forced to, like I said, it's because this is the, maybe they didn't want to retire or exit, but the numbers are so good. In some cases, they kind of feel like, you know, and I'm a little fatigued from the last 24 months of just, you know, jumping through hoops because of COVID. Um, that maybe this is my stepping off point, but yeah, I think that's just the, the generational uh, phenomenon of, of retiring baby boomers is a, is a real thing that will forever change the competitive landscape of the trucking logistics space. And I assume when they make that decision, the first call they make is to the Tenney group, correct? Well, we, we hope that's the case. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we hope to leave them better than we found them. But yeah, I think that that's, uh, you know, that's, that's something that we take great pride in is just helping them kind of navigate that timing and what's right for them and, and, and uh, helping them get where they want to go. All right. We want to thank Spencer Tenney. He's the president and CEO of the Tenney Group, the company that bears his name, talking to us today about logistics M&A. And we hope to have you back, Spencer. I would love that. Thank you, sir. So you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. We are on all the major podcast platforms. You can hear us on wherever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. Mm-hmm.